following talk is from St. Michael's Fowell, a gospel-centered community for Fowell, Teddington, and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website, stmichaelsfowell.co.uk. We're now going to turn to the part of our service where we look at God's Word and hear Him speak to us. And we've had a break for a couple of weeks from our normal morning series in the book of Daniel, uh, as we've done a couple of specials. Uh, Today we're back, Daniel chapter 5, and Simon is going to come and preach to us. It's on page 890 in the Bibles in front of you. Feel free to listen along. Simon. James, thanks so much. Um, There's a handout which uh, hopefully will be coming around to you. And uh, it is great to be back in the book of Daniel um, after a couple of weeks away, as as, uh, Bunyan said. And uh, just as those handouts are going around, let me put some... David, can we have three familiar phrases on the screen? The writing's on the wall. His days are numbered. His knees are knocking. You know with the first two that something bad is going to happen to someone. Their time is up. You see phrases like this in the news all the time. The writing's on the wall for so-and-so. Their days are numbered in their political role or whatever it is. Uh, You know with the last one that someone's terrified. Their knees are knocking. All of those phrases have come into the English language from Daniel chapter 5. Intrigued? So um, here's what you need to know before we hear the passage. Daniel 5 takes place on a... That's the day we're going to hear about in Daniel 5. The last Babylonian ruler is about to fall and the Persian Empire is about to take over on this day. So we're going to hear the reading. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. 
He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your Majesty, the Most High God, gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Meanie, meanie, tekel, parson. Here is what these words mean. Meanie, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Well, there you go. Dramatic, dramatic story, helped or hindered by the pictures. I don't know. Um, let's pray and ask for God's help as we consider these words. Father, despite the cartoons, we thank you that this is real history and real history that you have recorded for us for your purposes. And we pray, Lord, that we would listen closely to your voice in Daniel 5 
that you would show us and humble us by the things that you say. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we um, go through the story, I want to just mention two really interesting things. I find them very interesting, and I hope you do. Uh, Interesting and encouraging. Um, Two things I want to tell you about. One is about the king in this chapter, King Belshazzar. Uh, At one time, some time ago, sort of early 1800s, it was very, very popular to say King Belshazzar did not exist. That is what the the ancient historians uh, of 150 years ago thought. They thought the Bible made him up because um, we have no, well, we had no information about him outside the Bible. Uh, There are complete lists of the kings of Babylon that were available at the time to historians. Belshazzar is not on those lists. Even worse, we know from those lists and and, uh, other archaeological things who the last king of Babylon was. His name was Nabonidus. And he was king until the very end, until the Persians took over. So people said, well, yeah, you can't trust the history in the Bible. The Bible authors clearly invented Belshazzar, who didn't exist. But then, um, in the late 1800s, there were a couple of archaeological finds. In 1854, this was found. Uh, This is called the Nabonidus Cylinder, all about the last king of Babylon. And at the end of what is written, he prays for his son, who is called, guess what? Belshazzar. And then this was found, uh, the next one, which is called the Nabonidus Chronicle. And it gives lots and lots of details of Nabonidus's reign, including that he didn't really much like being king and just went away and disappeared for 10 years, living far away in Arabia. Guess who he left to live and reign in Babylon in his place? his son, Belshazzar, who was co-ruler, effectively the the king there in his father's long absence. And if you want to go and see both of those things, they're in the British Museum, so uh, feel free to go and and do that. It turns out that Daniel 5 was historically accurate all along, and it explains something else as well. Do you remember how um, Belshazzar repeatedly offers the third most important position in the kingdom? Why third? Seems a bit random. Belshazzar himself was the second most important person in the kingdom, because his father still, in theory, was the first. Now, maybe you're people who love those kind of historical connections. I, I do, but maybe, maybe you don't. But here's why it's important. You'll find people today still very often say, oh, the Bible is just dodgy when it comes to history. You can't really trust. It makes stuff up out of convenience. Um, maybe you're someone who has your doubts yourself about how trustworthy the Bible is about history. I want to tell you, you don't need to. You don't need to have concerns and doubts about the Bible's uh, description of people and places. Over and over and over again, archaeological discoveries have demonstrated the Bible's description of people and places is accurate. Incredibly so. There are tours you can do of the British Museum that show you exhibit after exhibit which exactly match the Bible's accounts of history. So don't bet against the Bible, even if there's still stuff in the Bible that we can't at the moment verify with historical findings. Um, Here's something a, a scholar writing about the book of Daniel said about this. 
When confronted with a supposed error in the scriptures, therefore, the better part of wisdom is to withhold judgment until man's knowledge catches up with the biblical statements. In every case, the sacred record has been substantiated. So that's the first thing. I find that enormously encouraging, don't you? That there was all this skepticism, and then it was uh, proved wrong. The second really interesting thing, by way of introduction, is about how the book of Daniel is put together. If you look at your handout and look down at the bottom, um, I've mentioned before that one of the strange features of Daniel is that although some of it's written in Hebrew, like the rest of the Old Testament is, there's a big chunk, chapters 2 to 7, written in Aramaic, which is the language of um, Babylon. And that fits with the experience of Daniel and his friends who were kidnapped out of Israel where they spoke Hebrew, taken into Babylon where they spoke Aramaic. Uh, So they were immersed in Babylonian culture and language. But there's more that I want to show you this morning about that. If you look at that outline on your handout, there's a symmetrical pattern to the chapters. They come in pairs, going from the outside to the inside. So chapters 2 and 7 both have visions of four human kingdoms and then God's kingdom coming to replace them. Chapters 3 and 6 both have amazing rescues where God saves his people from human kings. And then right in the middle is where we are. Chapters 4 and 5 both have human kings that God judges. And we're meant to compare them. I haven't bothered mentioning this till now um, because it wouldn't have seemed particularly helpful as we sort of go through that first half. But this week it becomes relevant because we've hit the midpoint and uh, we're going to be sort of going out again. And each week we might want to compare chapter with chapter um, to compare it with the first half. And we'll see uh, an amazing comparison between Nebuchadnezzar and uh, Belshazzar, these two kings in chapters four and five. I hope you agree That's kind of interesting, but also helpful and encouraging. The Bible is incredibly carefully written. It is great to to see these things and remember that. So these two middle chapters, last time we saw proud King Nebuchadnezzar, the mighty conqueror of nations, uh, emperor, dictator of the Babylonian Empire, but amazingly humbled and turning to the Lord in faith. This time, we see proud King Belshazzar, who inherited that same kingdom, ruled it like Nebuchadnezzar had. But Belshazzar's pride is never humbled, and his story has a much more tragic ending. So let's um, just quickly run through the events of the chapter. I've summarized it with four headings on your sheet. We'll spend a bit more time on the first than the others. Um, So four things to take us through the story. First of all, Belshazzar's defiance. As soon as the chapter begins, you get a sense of his ego and his power. He holds this great feast for a thousand nobles, and the wine is flowing very, very freely, and his wives and his concubines were there as well. I mean, this is a really ugly side of power, Uh, not just the sexist polygamy of one man having many, many wives, but also lots of concubines who were effectively sex slaves, probably many of them underage. And they were there at this feast with all the gathered nobles. It doesn't take much imagination to fill in the blanks with what kind of horrific and abusive stuff was going on at this feast. Now, Daniel doesn't dwell on that, but it is worth saying in passing, the Bible 
always opposes that kind of sexual and gender abuse from page one. Right at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1, God makes human beings male and female, equally in his image, equally, in, uh, equally valuable, equally loved, equally treasured by him. And the pattern of relationship is never a power play, never abuse, a beautiful partnership instead between one man, one woman, as Genesis 1.24 puts it, who unite to become one flesh. And if you want to read about how the coming of Jesus absolutely transformed the ancient world and is still transforming the world today in terms of the valuing of women and the care of children, um, do read the book we've often recommended, uh, The Air We Breathe by Glenn Scrivener. He, he just shows fantastically how the gospel has transformed the world's attitude uh, to women and to children. But there's something even more than this power and abuse about Belshazzar. The abuse of his feast was, was sadly horrifyingly normal in his day. Nebuchadnezzar probably had similar feasts. So here's the question. What was worse about Belshazzar that led to him meeting his downfall than about Nebuchadnezzar who repented and escaped? Well, look at the extent of Belshazzar's defiance against God. We find out later that Belshazzar knew all about Nebuchadnezzar, all about how Nebuchadnezzar had turned to the Lord. But at this feast, what does Belshazzar do? Well, he asks in verses 2 and 3 for um, a set of special gold and silver goblets to be brought in. Now, these are gold and silver goblets that had been stolen from Jerusalem, stolen from the temple in Jerusalem uh, when Babylon had in invaded. Belshazzar knows that they belong to God, the God of Israel, the God his father Nebuchadnezzar had come to, to worship. By the way, um, the word father is more in, in a sort of line of kings, a little bit like how uh, in the Old Testament uh, all of the kings of Israel are said to be sons of David and have David as their father. Um, Belshazzar, we know from uh, uh, the historical finds, was not a direct descendant of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, except possibly through his mum married into the family, we don't quite know. Um, but father is, is in that sort of line of kingly descent rather than directly uh, father. The point is, at this abusive feast, Belshazzar wants to drink from the special cups belonging to the Lord as, I guess, an act of pure, arrogant defiance. Imagine them just all getting drunk and all those other things that were going on with these objects that had been for special holy use in the temple of God. And then, verse 4, as they drank the wine... They praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, anything but the one true God that he knew Nebuchadnezzar had turned to. They had their Babylonian gods. They had other conquered gods from the nations around, stolen idols. Um, some of you know I read quite a lot of G.K. Chesterton over the summer. Here's one of the most famous things people quote from G.K. Chesterton. When a man stops believing in God... He doesn't believe in nothing. He believes in anything. Now, you might well have heard that quote. One problem with the quote, there's no evidence that Chesterton ever said it. Um, 
So we're going to cross them out. But it's still a good quote. <laughs> we think it comes from someone who wrote a book about Chesterton rather than from Chesterton himself. So it's not original Chesterton. But it's still true and helpful when we don't worship the God who made all of us, the one true God, it's not that we stop worshipping. Worship is part of who we are. Um, So we worship other things. We worship other gods. Sometimes it's gods that we label as gods, made of gold and silver and wood and stone. Sometimes it's um, other things. We don't call them gods, usually, but they still are. I mean, if you think about the feast... What things that were not labelled as gods were still being worshipped at that feast? Things like money and pleasure and sex and status and power. Suddenly that sounds a little bit contemporary, doesn't it? Our society does it in different ways. It's not as lurid, necessarily, uh, about the way those things are are worshipped, but those are still very often our gods. Look at what people often live for, money, power, sex, status, pleasure. Aren't those still the kinds of things that drive human ambition, that we, we prioritize above all else and try to have above everything else? Even in, on the surface, a more civilized generation, a more polite and calm culture, perhaps, aren't we still often preoccupied, if we're honest, with increasing our bank balance, or making our homes bigger or nicer, or getting as much pleasure out of life in whatever way works for us as we can. If we're really honest, don't those things very often float to the top of what we're pursuing in life? Isn't the story of 19th and century, uh, 20th century Britain that God was increasingly pushed out of the picture, and we started worshipping aspects of our lifestyle more and more. Maybe we are a bit more like Belshazzar than we want to admit. Sure, he's obvious and blatant in how he turns from God and worships other things. Maybe we do it too, though, in more subtle, more polite, more pleasant, more acceptable ways. Something to ponder. But back into the story, suddenly, all of this is interrupted. In verse 5, we have this ghostly apparition. Uh, The hand writing on the wall, actually just fingers, the verse says, appear and and write on the wall. It's one of the greatest and most memorable moments in all stories. I imagine um, in the feast, probably just a few people noticed it at first and uh, froze in shock, and then some of them scream, and then other people turn around and look. And uh, people in the middle of their feasting, and they're drinking, and whatever else was going on in that hall, suddenly everyone is looking at those fingers, mouths wide open in horror. Uh, Verse 6 says, Belshazzar turned pale. His knees were knocking. That's where that phrase comes up. And also in that verse where it says, his legs became weak. I'm led to believe the uh, original uh, Aramaic means his knots were untied which sort of leaves us guessing as to what that might mean biologically and physically. Um, I'll leave that to your imagination. Because this is obviously supernatural. They were terrified. They would be. We would be. The danger of watching 
cartoons is that it feels like a cartoon, but this was very real, horrifyingly real, and panic ensues. So next up on the handout, we have Daniel's wisdom. And uh, Belshazzar is desperate to know what this writing means. That's all that matters to him now. Maybe his guilty conscience was telling him that there's no way it could be anything good. He's just defied uh, a God who claims to be the creator of all. And this has happened. Um, So first in verse 7, he tries the wise men of Babylon. I don't know if you remember them, the enchanters, the astrologers, the diviners. They are as useless in chapter 5 as they were for Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 and in chapter 4. Um, They pretended to have divine supernatural abilities. When it came to real supernatural divine intervention, they had no clue at all. Then in verse 10, the queen comes in. She had a lot of lipstick, didn't she, in the cartoon? Um, Which probably means um, Belshazzar's mother. Uh, Remember, uh, Belshazzar was the son of the true king. Uh, This queen, possibly, according to archaeological evidence, might have been Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. So, she seems to remember, she knows everything that's happened with Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, uh, she remembers Daniel, the one who interpreted dreams for Nebuchadnezzar. By the way, one thing the cartoons got wrong uh, is they made Daniel look very young. Uh, this day, the fall of Babylon, is actually 66 years after chapter 1 when he was kidnapped from Israel as a teenager. So Daniel is much older. He's probably into his 80s by now, probably thinking he's permanently retired from having to do this kind of thing. Um, but Daniel is found. He's brought to the feast The queen says in verse 11 that she knows he has insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. She says the spirit of the holy gods is in him. That's her take on it. Verse 12, she says he has a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve difficult problems. High praise. Actually, um, Daniel would give us a very different interpretation of how he's been able to give these interpretations of dreams and how he's been able to be wise. Back in chapter 2, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar this, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Daniel depends entirely on God uh, to reveal these mysteries. And uh, wisdom, wisdom's a huge theme in Daniel. The word comes up about 20 times in the book. And uh, we need to know this. True wisdom comes from the Lord. It never comes from these supposed wise men who, who come and try to uh, advise the king. True wisdom for us doesn't ultimately come from human attempts to figure out the mysteries of life and the universe and everything. We can only get so far with that. We're very limited in what we can really investigate and discover. If we really want to know the answers to the important questions of life, who am I? Where have I come from? Where am I going? What is the purpose of my life? How should I live? What is ultimately wrong with the world? How can that be fixed? If we want real, true, trustworthy wisdom, on those things. We have to listen to the Lord, as Daniel did. Only he can give us the wisdom that we need. So it's good to ask yourself, are you seeking God's wisdom above 
all the other sources of wisdom you might have access to? Or are you just trying to figure things out within the philosophies of the world? That's one of the unique things about the Bible. One of the unique things about coming to church as we engage with what God has said in the Bible. That you can come and and receive God's wisdom for your life. So, Belshazzar offers Daniel this third most important position in the kingdom. Daniel's not very interested. He kind of knows what's going to happen, and he's probably feeling a bit old for it anyway. Um, Daniel says, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Well, he will this night. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. But he doesn't quite yet get to the writing. Um, Next up on your handout, there's Nebuchadnezzar's example. Belshazzar's desperate to know what the writing means, but Daniel first just gives him a, a humiliating history lesson, basically saying, remember Nebuchadnezzar, verse 19. Verse 19 shows us that Nebuchadnezzar was even more impressive than Belshazzar. Everyone was terrified of Nebuchadnezzar because of all the conquering he'd done. He did whatever he pleased. Look at this description of despotic leadership in verse 19. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. Those he wanted to humble, he humbled. Now look, Nebuchadnezzar too was arrogant and full of pride, like Belshazzar. That's what verse 20 says. But when it came to it, when God confronted him, when God humbled him, do you remember last time about how Nebuchadnezzar was driven mad and lost his mind and lived outside with the animals like a beast and then finally looked up? And at the end of verse 21, it says, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets them over anyone he wishes. That's what Nebuchadnezzar realized. God is God, not Nebuchadnezzar. God is sovereign, not Nebuchadnezzar. Not any human ruler, whether then or now. Which is a comfort, isn't it? In a world where some human rulers are desperately brutal and vicious and oppressive. So Nebuchadnezzar was a great story of repentance, of humbling, of being saved from his pride by turning to God. And then in verse 22, Daniel really sticks the knife in to to Belshazzar. He says, but you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Belshazzar knew all about Nebuchadnezzar's example. And he deliberately chose to ignore it, to reject the true God that had saved his forebear, Nebuchadnezzar. Children sometimes like to do that, don't they? Every generation does, reject what the parents do. Um, We like to reject the faith of our parents and grandparents. It can feel cool and liberating and exciting and moving on into new things. But when it means turning against the true and living creator God, it is tragic. Parents, I count myself in that bracket, we, we don't have control over our children's hearts, but we do have the ability to set an example, an example of faith and uh, humility and repentance. Let's show our kids what it is to love the Lord and to receive his grace, uh, to seek his wisdom in the Bible, to be 
someone who's totally committed to the Lord, to his people, to church. The one thing that stats say is likely to help children keep trusting the Lord, keep being in church later in life, is if parents make it an every week thing to be in church. The stats all back that up. If, if we're occasional attenders, which is so easy to drift into, the stats suggest that children are much less likely to bother when they get older. Let's pray for our children. Let's set them examples. Let's set them the best example of faith that we can as our top priority in life. Amen? Nebuchadnezzar did set some kind of example for Belshazzar. I don't know how good it was as an example. Belshazzar knew all about that, all about his faith. And in his defiance and his, his hard-hearted arrogance, he ignored it. So finally, we come to, um, on your handout, to the verdict, God's verdict on Belshazzar. And Daniel's words in verse 23 are devastating. He says, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you. You and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Wouldn't it be awful to have that verdict on your life? You spent your money, spent your life worshiping all the wrong things. You've made gods out of money and power and pleasure and sex and whatever other gods we want. But none of them are the true God. None of them is the God who made us, who holds us in his hands and all, hold our, holds in his hand our life and all our ways. It's a terrible waste to defiantly and deliberately turn against the one who made us, to reject his purpose for our lives, to go through life without his wisdom, to live for ourselves instead of him, to push away the grace he offers us, the forgiveness he offers us. And the writing on the wall, when Daniel finally gets to it, it's fairly simple, really. Those words, mene, mene, tekel, parsin, they all have double meanings. Um, on the one hand, they're all coins. It's a little bit like saying to, God saying to Belshazzar, a pound, a pound, 2p, 50p, that kind of thing. Um, as if to say, God's counting out the, the value, the length, the worth of Belshazzar. And then the other meanings of each of those coin words are there in verses 26 to 28. Mene means numbered. Your days are numbered. Tekel means weighed. You've been weighed in the scales and found wanting. Perez, uh, if that confused you, that's the singular of parsin, apparently. The footnote tells us that. Um, that means divided. And Daniel says, your kingdom is going to be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. This is tragic. It's the tragic end of Belshazzar. By defiantly rejecting God, he's thrown away his own life and everything that he has. And that's what happens. As we're told, that very night, he dies as the invading Persians uh, come and take over the kingdom of Babylon. 
maybe your reaction is, oh gosh, isn't that harsh? Isn't that unfair of God? But remember the key difference between Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. Both awful men, awful. Both proud and vicious. But one ultimately was willing to be humbled and receive God's mercy, forgiveness. And the other was not. The other set his face against God defiantly and said, no, forever. Now, all sorts of lessons from this as we finish. Um, One is the encouraging lesson for, for God's people oppressed under such rulers. God can take them down. We're going to hear a little bit more about uh, that kind of thing over the next few weeks, so I won't pause on that too much. But the one to just think about this morning, I think, is we do need to humble ourselves and be ready to meet our maker. Uh, There is a judge of all the earth. And you might wonder, what will he do with me? Is he willing to forgive me? If he really sees everything I've thought and said and done. Well, be encouraged. God forgave Nebuchadnezzar. Pretty sure you haven't done anything as bad as him. I mean, if you have, come and chat. Um, But if you're asking, will God forgive me? Can he? Look at Nebuchadnezzar, but even more than that, look at Jesus. Jesus came to die, to give his life, that you might have forgiveness, that all of us might receive blessing and be saved from our sins, saved from death, saved from judgment. Jesus even says in Matthew 12, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man can be forgiven. If you've spent your life bad-mouthing God, bad-mouthing Jesus, he wants to forgive you for that. He still wants you to come. Jesus came and died for us to take the judgment we deserve. There's no need for the writing to be on the wall for you. Jesus has come, died in your place, so that can be scrubbed out and gone. The record of our sins, gone. And you brought in, like Nebuchadnezzar, as a child of God. So, as we close, I want us to to pray. uh, Prayers of repentance, and do join in with me um, if you want to repent of your own life faced away from God Um, you could do that for the first time or the millionth time as I pray and then perhaps if the band want to come up we're going to sing in response in a moment let's bow our heads and pray these sobering words your days are numbered you've been weighed in the scales and found wanting the writing is on the wall Father help us to be serious about this Help us, Lord, not to hide from the reality that you made the world, you love the world so much that you sent your one and only Son, that whoever uh, believes in him may not die but have eternal life. And you call us to yourself, you invite us, even a Nebuchadnezzar, you invite with such grace. Lord, please might we be those who come. Please might we be those who Repent of all the ways we've put other things above you, made other things our God. Pray, Father, that you would grant us forgiveness, peace, life, wisdom, all our days.
and thank you that in the Lord Jesus we can be saved from all of this. In Jesus' name we pray.